Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 12th, 2020, and this is episode 2750 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday. We're going to do a listener feedback show today. We're going to take some stuff from the audience here, answer some questions, and give you my thoughts on some things that you guys have been asking me about. Uh, we'll get to all of that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a sponsor that I think so highly of their product, they pay me in product. Uh, every month, a giant box of meat shows up at uh, my front gate, and I go out there and get it. It's always the most fantastic meat that, uh, that you could ask for. Uh, pastured pork, grass-fed beef, pastured poultry, and even some really cool seafood items are now available. Uh, they have grown. In the uh, three years that we have had our relationship with ButcherBox, they have grown from a, a small brand uh, trying to make their way in the world to a mega brand, a brand that's now advertising on major networks, on television, etc. And they have stayed true to supporting us as we have supported them. Recently, I heard from my contact, Daniel, over there, uh, where he took care of something. He just had an issue with a, with a customer, and I said, hey, this is not right, and I took care of it. And he said, and I said, I always appreciate you guys remembering you know, who we are and, and taking care of it. He says, you guys helped us build the company. We are not going to forget you. That's a hell of a thing to hear from a company in 2020. Check them out today at ButcherBox.com. Remember, they do have a discount available for you. I want to explain something about this discount, too. I think it's creating confusion. I've said often that your discount could amount to like free bacon for life, and that's because you get $10 off every order. And you can apply that to bacon. Uh, people, A couple of people have called in and had issues that really weren't issues. They wanted the CSR, the customer service person, at ButcherBox to manually assign bacon to their just all you do is spend the ten dollars however you want that, that's it like basically you can just get your box the way it is with nothing extra and have ten dollars off it it's just ten bucks i was just giving you one way you could spend your extra ten dollars anyway uh with that uh next up on the sponsor of the day roll call today jeff the berkey guy gleason You talk about a loyal sponsor. This is a guy that's been with us forever. And I want to make a suggestion with him. He's great at customer service. I recently had a complaint from someone who said, hey, you've said this guy's great for customer service for years, and I've emailed him, and I'm not getting back with me, and uh, I'm having problems. And I emailed Jeff and copied the customer, and he said, tell this customer to call us. Uh, sometimes the email breaks down. If you have a problem, Jeff is the kind of guy that there will be somebody that will answer the phone and square you away. You can find out more about Jeff the Berkey at Gleason at his website, directive21.com, where you can not only get Berkey water filtration systems, but many other cool things for your prepping needs. Uh, again, just a long-term sponsor. Been with us since 2010. It's 2020, by the way. They've been with us since 2010. All right. With that, let's start digging into this. Start out with a uh, quote of the day today. Uh, this one is by Wayne Dyer, uh, who's a well-known author and psychologist, uh, big in the self-help world, I guess you would say. Uh, this definitely is a good self-help advice. It's just good advice in general, though. And it's something I say in a different way all the time. Go for it now. The future is promised to no one. I say this in a lot of ways. Like One is you know, make the most of your dash. Make the most of your dash. That's, that's exactly what that means. I'll also say it, though, when I talk about some level of fatalism. There's only so much you can do something about in your life. You know, you can make sure your vehicle's in good repair. You can always wear a seatbelt. 
you can have airbags. But tomorrow you could be in your vehicle and get hit by like a gravel truck that just completely demolishes it and takes your life. So I bring that up when people are like, but what if, but what if, but what if. What if is very useful in setting up systems of redundancy, but there's also a point where you got to go live life. But what if I get COVID? I don't know, man. You probably won't even know it. There's a point where you got to get up and get out of bed and get on with life, right? And that means there's a point where you got you got to take your shot. And there's a balance here that I think is really, really important. There are people that live in Tomorrowland. All the time. And it's very detrimental to their lives. I'm going to do this next week. I'm going to do this next year. I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to do this, you know, next month, next quarter, whatever. And it's always kind of a next year thing. Well, I'll do better next year. You know, we're going to add this next year. We're going to do that next year. We're going to do this. When, when all this bullshit stops from COVID, we'll do that. You know, this kind of thinking. The reason this is so potentially damaging to your life is people that live in that world seldom get anything done. It's always an excuse. It's always later. And it's it's from little things to big things. I need to take care of this, but I'll do it tomorrow. And it doesn't happen tomorrow either, and it doesn't happen the next day. And it gets to a point where it's been not done for so long, there's no reason to do it. And it happens with really big things, like starting a business or building a life that you want. And it, it permeates your entire life. On the other hand, on the other hand, That does not mean stop thinking about tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. If you want to find a person who is suicidal, find a person who has stopped thinking about tomorrow. It is the most dangerous thing psychologically you can do is to stop thinking about tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. When you stop planning for a future, you stop living in the present. So with this quote in mind, go for it now. The future is promised to no one. That does not mean not to think about tomorrow, because what we're building today is for tomorrow. With that, let's go ahead and uh, and get into some of the, the questions that you guys have for me today. So this one comes from Robert. He says, what's the best option for creating a Miyagi pond when you're on city water? My wife and I love the ponds you built. We'd like to do the same thing. However, we're on city water with the associated chemicals added to the water that would kill the fish. Can the water be treated to remove chemicals at a large scale? Would water catchment provide enough water? What's a good backup source? I know it depends. Digging a well. Love the show and have learned and implemented many of the things from your show. Okay, well, first of all, Robert, I think that anybody that can have a well affordably should have a well. Now, whether or not you can have a well affordably has everything to do with geography. So, like, where I grew up in Florida, my grandfather was a grass guy. He loved his grass. His, his yard was like a golf course. And he wanted to water his grass, and he was also a tightwad. And he knew that it would be a lot less expensive, that a well would pay for itself over buying water very, very quickly in Florida, because the water table was about 10 feet down, and its soil was sand. And a guy came out and basically put his 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 well in using his garden hose from his house pressure and a point system and, and just went down. I think he went down something like 16 feet, which was, like I said, five, six-ish feet below the top of the water table and said, this will be good, you're good to go. And I don't know what it cost him, but I know that my grandfather would not have spent that much money on a well, and I can't see it costing that much. He probably spent more on the equipment than on the labor because the guy did it in a couple hours, and he did not work hard. If you want a well in around here, you're into it for over $10,000, at least. More like twenty right now. 
because it's rock and it's deep, and all the well drillers are making more money drilling for the gas companies than they are drilling for you know people with houses. So you're having to pay them more than they're getting to get them to pull a, a rig off a job for a couple of days. So that decision needs to be completely financial. If it was under a thousand bucks, I might use a pond as an excuse to do it. But if it was much more, I would only do it if I had other reasons. So let's just shelve that for now and then go from there. Water catchment. Can you do enough water catchment to maintain your pond? Probably. Depends on how much water catchment you're willing to hold. There's no doubt that the roof of the average suburban home uh, in most areas, unless you're like in the middle of the desert, uh, is going to get far, uh, far more than enough rainfall to maintain a pond once it's full uh, at, a, at a, a level uh, in between rain events when you'll also recharge your catchment. If you can channel catchment from your roof into your pond, that would be great. But if you had catchment prior to your pond, I would channel it from your roof to your catchment, overflow the catchment into the pond, and then overflow the pond into a garden or something like that. If you can do rainwater, that would be the best. That would even be better than a well. I don't do it with rain catchment. I do it with a well because I have one, and it's good enough. As far as your chemicals... Chlorine and chloramine, and it's probably chloramine, is really the only real issue with keeping fish alive. In my office alone, just in the tanks that I have here, I have well over 500 gallons of water that I'm staring at right now. Big, beautiful fish swimming around in them. I have a well, so I fill them from a little hose thing that comes in through my window, and you fill them up and whatever. But I maintain tanks like this where I was on city water, and you just use dechlorinator. It can get expensive... When you're talking about a pond the size that we're talking about, at least for the initial fill-up. So all you do is calculate the numbers. You figure out how much water goes in the pond, you fill up the pond, and then you, you add that much of a chemical treatment. Um, on an ongoing basis, you could be using as much as 200, 300 gallons of water in a week in the peak of summer. And you use a lot less later if we're talking about something like an 8x8 or uh, a 12x12 pond. The bigger the surface area, the more evaporation, the more water you need. And, and, and then you're going to have to factor in, like, well, how much rain do you get? If you're in a climate that gets lots and lots of rain, it may not be that big a deal to maintain. If you're in a climate that gets very little rain or for periods of the year gets very little rain, you got an issue. Next is going to be how much surface area can you cover? How much surface area can you cover? So if you can use lily pads or other aquatic vegetation or other things to, to shade out the majority of the surface area during your summer, you're going to drastically reduce evaporation. Here's the good news. If you plumb city water into your pond with a float valve, so now I'm not talking about you let the water level go down 550, 600 gallons, and you just fill it up. Because that could end up with there being a problem. Probably not as much as most people would think, but you could end up chlorine or chloramine poisoning your fish. Okay, If you're talking about a pond with, say, 3,000 gallons of water, even more, that's getting 5 to 10 gallons of city water a day, Especially once that pond is set up, the biology of that pond and the total dilution of volume will take care of your chemicals. Basically what you're doing is something that we would refer to in the world of aquariums as a drip-through tank. 
or constant drip tank. You can look that up to see how that works. And there are people that get really worried about the chlorine or chloramine in these systems. And there's people that don't do anything, and both of them have great results. The way that would work is you have, a, let's say, an aquarium room in your house. You have a rack of aquariums. And instead of doing constant water changes and maintenance, you have going into, you, let's, say all you, let's say you have 10 tanks of varying sizes. They're all dead level with each other, though. Okay, So they have the same size top and bottom. They're at the same level. And they're all plumbed together with a common system, let's say uh, drilled with bulkheads. So basically it's like one giant tank. The individual tanks are just to keep different species of fish minding their own business, so to say. And into one of your tanks, you have drip, 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 like that going on. And there's even people that get down to what's the exact number of drips per minute you need. Whatever. doesn't matter. You do that. And that, of course, maintains a level in that tank. And then the last tank in that series has a drain line that either goes out into a garden or, in some cases, what people do is run it down their their drain into their common system. As most people in the country are on grid water, they're using grid water to do this. Some people, like I said, will put it through a system that uh, chlorinates it or they have a certain amount of uh, dechlorinates it or they have a certain amount of dechlorinator that's automatically injected into their systems daily. But I've seen dozens of people set these systems up that don't do any of that. The total volume of water relative to the amount of water coming in on a daily basis is sufficient that all of the chlorine and chloramine dissipates. And I'm going to get email, hateful emails from people here that know better, that they're sure I'm wrong about this, and none of them will have actually tried it. And it is not the same as taking a 55-gallon tank and taking 10 gallons of water out of it and then replacing that water without using a dechlorinator because you're, the volume of water that goes in there is so insignificant relative to the total per day. So I think you can actually do exactly what I'm saying here, and that is if you build a pond and you maintain it on a, um, on a float valve, however you decide to do that, you are only going to replace the amount that evaporates daily, and it's a very, very small amount. And you're much better off doing that than just about anything else you can do because that means you're not going to like go on vacation and come back and your pond volume has dropped like a foot. Now, if you get to a point where you feel that you need to do a water change, and you might, then you're going to need to be mindful about how much water you took out and how much water goes back in. Now, the good news is you can cut off your supply to your float valve, drain the pond using the pump that you're using in it, just you know, route the water somewhere. Use that definitely for irrigation or something like that. And then you know, like if you have a 12 by 12 and you took one foot of water, you can do the math and figure out the volume of water. And then all you do is just go ahead and turn your flow back on and put that amount of the chlorinator in the water, and it will be fine. But I would only do that when making a significant water change. I wouldn't worry about it otherwise. Now, I really think that one of the most beautiful things you can do for yourself is have reserve water on your property. So what you can do is go and build a water catchment system as long as you have a way to move water from the catchment system into the pond and then plumb that to your float valve and... I guess unless you're some extreme climate type, if, as long as you have enough water in reserve, and I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 gallons. Now, there's many ways to do that. Four 330-gallon IBCs that you can get for less than $100 a piece. Um, one 1,500-gallon poly poly tank. You can buy it like Tractor Supply or at, uh, at Woods or something like that. 
and then you only need to elevate those if you're going to rely on gravity to get the water into the pond. With a Miyagi pond where you're already fairly high with the sides of the pond, if you're talking about doing something like I've got, you're not going in the ground, I would just put a pump in the damn thing. So you use something like an on-demand DC, power, you know, DC to AC pump. So they have a DC pump, right, but it has an AC adapter. I can't remember the exact model number of the one I use. I'll see if I can look it up for you, though. And, uh, and give you that. And you could use that. And that's an external, doesn't go in the tank. It goes outside the tank. You can use a submersible tank in, in there, but you need, you, you're going to want something that's on demand so that it only kicks on when that float valve opens. Otherwise, you're pushing pressure against it constantly. And you, you got to think about any way that you get water from a catchment into a pond, frost protection based on your temperatures. There you go. That's, that's the best answer I can give you there, but, Do not fear using city water in a pond like this on an ongoing small amount per day basis because I've just seen too many systems do that and not have a problem. Next up comes from Tactical Redneck. He says, hey, Jack, simple question, hopefully simple answer. If you're going to overwinter pepper plants, what would Jack Spirko do? Well, first he would spell his name right, dude. My name is not S-P-E-R-K-O. Anyway, I have two jalapeno and two Tabasco plants I would like to try to overwinter. I have a set in regular pots and a set in Kratky containers. Guess the big questions are, how much to cut the plant back, keep them cool or warm, outside, closer, inside, how much light is really necessary with next to no leaves, tactical. Okay, first of all, you don't really want to go into a dormant state with peppers. Peppers, contrary to what many people think, are perennial. That's why tactical wants to do this. You take a pepper, you bring it out of the, out of the freezing temperatures, and it will live. And then next year, you start with this nice frame and big, giant root system instead of a little bitty, bitty, itty, tiny seed and a little bitty pepper plant. And that way you get into production earlier. And I know some people in this audience who have had the same peppers going for five seasons now. Uh, I'm going to skip the Kratky for a minute and give you some thoughts on that at the end. Here's your general best practice. If it's already in a container, you're good. You don't even have to worry now. You're going to want to prune back to your main frame of your plants. You do not want to take all the leaves off. But I would put it this way. There should be a significant amount of the plant left. But if you don't feel a little uncomfortable with how much you've taken off the first time you do it, you probably haven't taken enough. Think of it like a deciduous bonsai tree, even though it's an evergreen, as long as it doesn't get into a bad situation and drop all its leaves where you're kind of creating the shape of the base of the plant. Now, this is not the shape of the plant when it's in full growth. You want to kind of create, you know, think about it being uh, around a foot to 18 inches tall, depending on the plant, that could be shorter or taller, with at least two tiers of the main branch system, maybe three, and, and, and prune it to about depending on the container, but in most typical containers people would use to about roughly just inside the diameter of the container's diameter on the top, if that makes sense. It's, it's hard to explain, but don't worry about it. Unless you cut it off at the stump, it'll be okay. But prune it significantly, because what you're going to want it to do is kind of go into a regeneration mode. Now, as far as where to keep these My opinion is that they do need significant light. And so the best thing to do is keep them somewhere that makes it as easy as possible for all those warm winter days, and especially days where you know it's not going to go below freezing at night. 
Because even in Tennessee, where you're at, there's a lot of days in January where it doesn't freeze at night. And then there's some weeks in January where it freezes every night. And there's some weeks in January sometimes where it's below freezing all day, all night, for a week long. So you have, <clears throat> you have this incredible free light system that is the best light system there is for plants called the sun. So I'd want to put it somewhere where it's relatively easy. And with four pots, it's not a huge ordeal to put outside and to bring in. If I was going to do this myself, I would put them just inside my shop building, my garage. And unless it was going to significantly freeze. So if I know the outside temperature is going to get down in the low 20s, then I might lug those big old pots into my house. So you have to figure out how that fits you. But as long as you know you're going to stay above freezing, that plant won't die. It might get more unhappy But at 35 degrees, for instance, that pepper plant will not die. It may even drop some extra leaves, but it will not die. You want to give it a good layer of mulch, and that way if you do screw up, there's a good chance the root system will survive, and it will still grow back from the bottom, though this won't be optimal. All right? But the best practice would be, obviously, if you had a greenhouse that you did some sort of supplemental heating to on nights that went below freezing to make sure it never freezed in there and it was constantly in the sun. It would actually start to regrow a lot after you pruned it right away and might even be producing by the time it goes back out permanently in the spring. With going indoors, you're going to have to set up a significant amount of light for it, but you do not have to make it grow. You just have to give it enough light that it's going to stay alive. And let it go a little bit semi-dormant, I guess would be the term here. So, you know, one good Barina two-foot light is probably all you need. Uh, or you've got four of them, so maybe one four-foot light over them. That's probably enough to keep them growing. But I would definitely try to get them into a state where they can go outdoors as often as possible, but come indoors easy enough that you won't be like, eh, you know... It might freeze a night, but it'll probably be okay. Because that's the night it's going to go, you know, supposed to be 34, and you worry it might go a little bit low, and you wake up, and you pull your weather app up, and you go, son of a bitch, and it says 24 degrees. That's happened to me here with, uh, do I blow the pipes out tonight or not? And it's like, well, it's going to be 31. And I'm like, it's probably going to be 29. But if it's only 29 for a couple hours, the pipes aren't going to freeze up. And then you get up, and it's 23 degrees outside. So... If you're even questionable, then they need to come in. So, again, make the transition process as easy as possible. Kratky. Oh, boy. I don't know. Never did it. So you have to now decide, do you want to continue to let these things grow hydroponically? Because with Kratky, that means you have to maintain a level. And Kratky is not designed for long-term growing. Kratky is not designed for perennials. It's designed for peppers, but for a season, the way most people grow them annually. So when we do cracky, we either do short-term crops where, you know, once once the crop's harvested, we just rebuild the container. You know, we, we, we empty the container, uh, we add new affluent, and we put new plants in. With long-term crops like cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers, if we're going to do cracky, and cracky is hydroponics without a pump. And the way it works is as the water level evaporates and drops, you end up with an air pocket and you end up with fluid. So eventually you end up with like half the container as an airspace and half the container as an affluent. And that means that we don't need air pumps. We don't need to worry about oxygen because all the roots in the open airspace get all the oxygen they need and all the roots down in the bottom 
get all the nutrient and water they need, and they actually keep that air pocket roots very, very moist. And it's a beautiful thing when it's, when it's, when it's done right. When you look at the roots of a uh, crab key system, they're gorgeous. They're fluffy, and they're fine, and they're hair-like, and they're white. When it comes to time, though, to take a Kratky plant and plant it in soil, I was told they'll die. No, they won't, but they could. This is a hard one to explain if you don't understand what Kratky is for everybody else. The roots are decidedly different. The ones that stay in the fluid look like more conventional roots. They're thick. They're long. They're branched out. The roots in the air pocket will look almost like the aviola in the lungs. They're very hair-like and frizzled out. So when you do Kratky, the, the, the natural inclination would be, well, when the water's half empty, I'll just mix up some new fluid and fill it back up. Whack! You've killed all your roots. Those roots can't live underwater. They formed a completely different root type. So it, it, it's a lot like trees with removing soil from the crown. You can go down to root level and remove it from the crown, and those roots will develop bark, and they will, they will be happy. But if you bury the tree, the trunk of the tree, it can never go back to being a root. It might shoot roots out of it in some trees, but the surface area you've covered that has bark on it will begin to rot and die. So it's very important when we do trees to expose the root flare, in the words of Harry Garrett, the dirt doctor, right? So it's a lot like that with hydro and Kratky. If we fill that water back up, it's going to die. So what we do is we plumb a float valve in there, and we say, to hither thou shalt decline and no further. So now we have a reserve of Kratky fluid, you know, our, our nutrient fluid, and a float valve. And then that way we don't have to constantly be opening it, checking it, and adding just a little bit, kind of like we just talked about the pond. Okay, if you bring that inside, that's complex. So probably your best bet is to transplant your Kratky system into soil. What you're going to want to do then is you're going to want to make sure you use the fluffiest, lightest, most gentle potting mix you can get your hands on. Something that's really, really like a pure potting mix. Something you go to the store and you buy. right? Because whatever the other ones are in, they're in. This needs to be very, very friendly. And when we fill this up, we need to take that plant and we need, however long those roots are, kind of like have one person hold them and then fill around the roots very gently trying to preserve as many of them as possible. And you may be able to get that transplant done. Or you can try overwintering them in the hydro bucket. The thing is, again, it's not designed for that, especially in the size bucket you would move around. Like I've seen people do tomatoes with Kratky. You put them in a 32-gallon garbage can. But, you know, when the end of the year comes, the end of the year comes, that tomato goes away. So you're going to have to decide if it's worth trying to transplant or deal with the Kratky system for those two plants. The ones in the pots are straightforward and easy. Let's take another one. So um, I started an article series I never finished. And it was called the Coming Crash Series. And I did four of the eight megatrends uh, that I believe are going to lead us to a, a drastic, drastic recession, if not depression, in the near future. And I got to the fourth one, and I got busy with other things. And I really need to get back and write the other four before the end of the year as they become more evident. People say, oh, you didn't really know. But the fifth one... It's been something that I'm on record for so long, I don't need to write an article to be on the record with it. It's municipal default. And I was talking about the potential for massive, massive crying, wailing, and gnashing of teeth due to municipal defaults in 2008. 
It's a nice thing about a podcast when you say you said something and somebody says, no, you didn't. You can say, then you can go listen to my shitty-ass recording from the car in 2008 of me saying it. Here it is. That has a lot to do with what John sent me. John sent me an article. I'm not going to read it. You can read it yourself. Um, and it's tied to another article that, that I'll also kind of tell you about. And the links to both of these are in the show notes today. Uh, but he said, San Francisco tax revenue plunge points to resident exodus. And it's an article on Fox News. And basically, it just says that there's a huge shortfall in, in revenue in San Francisco. And the only way to explain it is, well, when people leave, they're not there. And when they're not there, they don't pay tax. And when they don't pay tax, the government gets less money. Same vein, but seems differently, more tied to the migration out of the cities, which I've already covered in my Coming Crash series, but one causing the other does not make them the same, okay? But uh, VMware has cut pay for remote workers fleeing Silicon Valley, San Francisco. So what they're saying is, oh, yeah, Bill, you can go off to Sheboyganville, and you can keep your job, and you can work remotely. But if you do, we're going to pay you less because we know full well it costs you less to live in Sheboyganville than it does in San Francisco. And one of the executives from VMware said, we have to do this because otherwise employees are going to get to decide wherever they want to work and work from there, and we won't be able to stop them. Yeah, guess what? This is another example of like peeing into the wind, right? All you're going to do is get pissed all over yourself if you do that. That's why your daddy, if he was your good daddy, taught you when you were a little boy. I know I said you could pee on a tree, Johnny, but the wind's coming from that way. Turn pee into the wind. The VMware is pissing into the wind right now and wondering why they're getting pissed all over themselves. Because if I am, you know, it, let's say VMware, for those of you who are 70s kids like me, right, is, uh, is, is Spacely Sprockets, right? VMware is Spacely Sprockets. And I'm Cogswell Cogs. And I want Spacely Sprockets' best employees. And you start cutting their pay because they want to work remotely. I'll, I'm like, I'll let you work remotely and I'll pay you not as much as you were making, but not as little as you are making. Come on over to freaking Cogswell Cogs, boys! Right? Right? Why not? So the market itself is going to handle this, this attempt to stall the, 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 the escape from these major areas. And you, the only reason these companies are even trying to slow this down is to give themselves enough time to get out. Uh, what is the one, the pictures type? Pinterest already paid like almost $100 million to break a lease to leave. Because they, they did the math and went, we, it, we're better off doing this and leaving than staying here. So they already hauled ass. A lot of these other companies aren't quite willing to cut a check like that. And they're trying to hold it together long enough to get something for their infrastructure before they haul ass. Like, you can't do this. But the bigger, and we'll get to the remote worker component here in the future. But I just wanted to point that out. As the taxes are declining in San Francisco, Silicon Valley companies are threatening employees with, if you want to move, you can, but we're going to pay you less. And this was already happening. There were people, when I started talking about this back in March, about remote work, saying, well, I, my company already does that. You know, they, like, you just think you're going to get a pay raise, but you're not. My response is, unless you're stupid, yes, you are. Because the cost of living, aside from all the other problems, is so high in San Francisco. That if you go to the right place, they can cut your pay by 10% or 15% and you're still ahead. You have to do the totality of the math here. Right? And then you have to look at the quality of life. So if you end up at break even, but you were living in a one bedroom apartment with somebody taking a shit on the sidewalk, and now you have a four bedroom house with an acre of land, and you end up at the same net 
as far as income versus outgoing, at a zero sum, you are way ahead because you're no longer living in a one-bedroom apartment with somebody taking a shit on the sidewalk outside your window, which many people in San Francisco are. So this is this is a done deal. This is going. And the more people that leave, the, it, there's only a, a matter of time before the companies start seeing the opportunity to compete on this alone for talent. Because it's much easier for me if I'm Cogswell Cogs and I want to steal Space Lease Rockets customers, or I mean employees, they're rock stars, to say, hey, I'll pay you the same and you can live wherever you want. It doesn't cost me more. It actually costs me less money. And if you wouldn't trust an employee working from Sheboyganville, don't hire the morons. It's that simple. Be like, I have people work for me remotely all the time. People said, how do you do that? If I didn't trust them, I wouldn't hire them. And I don't care what they're doing. Frankly, I don't care if they're pleasuring themselves in the middle of the day as long as they answer the phone when a customer calls and don't sound like that's what they're doing. And as long as all the work that I want done gets done, I don't care. I don't care if they have three people that they've hired out of their own pocket doing part of their job for them because they read four-hour work week. I don't care. I want this thing done to perfection. And if it's done to perfection, I don't care. And most companies don't either. They're, they're feigning this now. They're feigning this to try to hold it together long enough to get their exit plans in order. They're leaving too. The tax revenue suck that is going to hit all of these major, specifically liberal cities, conservative ones too, but mostly liberal ones. All your coastal cities and your Midwest cities like Chicago, they are effed. They're effed. Hard. With no niceties to go along with it. It's happening. It's all part of the plan, and there's a plan to rebuild them in a new image. you got to burn it down to build it up. Okay? But that's what's going to happen in the interim. Now, here's the thing. Who's going to leave? Joe, who works for Space Lease Rockets or VMware or whoever. That's who's leaving. Bill, who works for the city of San Francisco, isn't leaving. Bill likes his job because he doesn't have to clean up the shit. Contractors do that, if at all. Bill works for the water department and he writes tickets. All the people that work for the parasite class in these cities probably are not, or the majority of them aren't going to leave. There's nowhere for them to go. There's not a whole bunch of opportunities for Bill that works for the freaking water department writing tickets in San Francisco to move somewhere else. Nobody wants Bill. You can have anybody do that job. Doesn't care. It matter that Bill needed a master's degree to get it because it was San Francisco, right? And then there's all the other people who have already retired in San Francisco city government who still want their money. I would like my money now. Please, bitch, better have my money. I'm a retired employee. I gave my whole life to this city. Give me my money. I want my money. But the whole thing was a Ponzi scheme, and if even 10% of that city leaves, it falls apart. This is why the Democrats are crying up a tree right now, wanting to turn the stimulus bill for COVID into the bailout bill for the municipalities because they know it's coming and they don't want it. See, I said it was a plan. I didn't say it was a plan from Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is a useful idiot bitch doing the work of the oligarchy even when she doesn't want to, even when she doesn't know she's being used as a useless idiot or useful idiot bitch. Okay. They want to try to save these Democrat cities. They're not going to. It's not happening. 
And even if they got there, like basically they're asking for like $3.7 trillion dollars. And about a half a trillion of it is for all their little pet programs, but about a trillion and a half of it is to try to fill this municipal default hole. And if they got it, every penny of it, it can only fix the problem for about 24 months. And that doesn't mean 24 months from now. That means it can make all of the places last about two more years total. If they distribute it right and do it perfectly. Have you ever seen the government do anything perfectly? So think more like 18 months. Forestalling the inevitable, which has already been accelerated by COVID. What you're about to see is municipal defaults all over the country and a cascading effect as there begin to become defaults on pension funds. And there isn't, 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 isn't enough money. There isn't enough money to fix it. I said there wasn't enough money to fix it in 2008. The problem has not gotten any better. It's gotten a lot worse. This cannot, this hole cannot be filled. It can't. And you're about to see countless cities, because you're going to see like these cities that are suburbs of Boston, city suburbs of Providence, Rhode Island, you places you're not even hearing about, Boston and Providence, Rhode Island. They're effed too. And places you're not even going to think about, like, oh, I don't know, places in Alabama that are effed, they don't have money. It's not just Democrat states. It's just, it's more the case in Democrat states because they spend money faster. They all spend more money than they should. And it's coming. I'm telling you right now, this is another reason to get out of these cities because they are literally going to implode. Because when, when workers stop getting paid, they're going to stop doing their jobs, the limited that they already do. You're, I'm talking on some places you'll have infrastructure failure, like water and lights to a degree. And a complete and total, like what, what you've seen already, okay, imagine Portland and imagine how it was in the area where it went crazy and then imagine it being like that everywhere in Portland and spilling out into Portland suburbs. That's kind of what you're going to get, though it won't all be fires and burning but a complete lack of any level of law enforcement and any level of, of services or control and any recourse. And then more people leave, and then the problem gets worse. So more people leave, so the problem gets worse. And then when they default, the first time checks don't go out to pay all the city employees or the teachers or whatever, then the powder keg ignites. That's number five in the five megatrends, municipal defaults. And like I said, megatrends are already in play. That's been in place since the early 2000s, and I've been talking about since 2008. Next up, Patrick wants to know, not that Patrick, different Patrick, Patrick D. I won't tell you his last name. I bought a whole duck trying to figure out how I'm going to prepare it. Considering comfy, can I or should I part out the bird and comfy the whole thing or comfy part and do the rest another way? How do you recommend cooking my first duck? Thanks for all you do, Patrick. Dude, it doesn't matter. You should cook your first duck however you feel like. However, I would not comfy a duck breast. Is not the highest, most noble use of a duck's breast. These are the options I would give you for how to prepare a duck. One, roast the whole duck. Now, if you bought a duck from the store and it came with a little package of orange syrupy shit, throw that away. Do not put that on your duck. That is disgusting. Determine the right temperature to roast your duck the way that you want it done and roast it in the oven like you would a chicken. That's it. 
you may want to spatchcock or butterfly, which means remove the backbone and flatten it out, but you don't have to. Ducks are actually easier to roast and get a good even cook on than a chicken because they're not quite as thick in the breast and as thin in other areas. That's one way to do this. When you're done with that, then you're basically going to eat the breast and the legs and maybe the top of the wings because there's not much meat on the wings. But you're like, you know, when you have a chicken wing, you got kind of the drum at the top piece and then the middle piece has a significant amount of meat too. You know, ducks have almost nothing there. So you might get that little drum at and it'll have, it'll be twice as big and have half the meat of a typical meaty chicken wing. There's very little there. Your meat is in your drumstick in your thigh or AKA your leg quarter and your breasts. So once you eat that, then you're going to take all those bones and you're going to make a duck stock and peel off everything that's left and make a duck soup. That's one option. I'm giving you two, and they're two, they're two easiest ones. The second one, you're going to get your trusty knife out, and you're going to debone the breast cutlets. You're going to make three very shallow, just into the skin incisions on a hash, cross hash, on, on, or not cross hash, on, a, on an angle on both of your breasts. You're going to put a little salt on them. You're going to set them aside and let that salt firm them up a little bit and pull a little bit of moisture out of them. You're going to take your leg quarters and you're going to take them off right at the right at the hip joint. And then you're going to decide either you want to confit the leg quarters, you want to roast the leg quarters, you want to pan fry, you want to grill, you do them however you want. Think of them like a chicken leg quarter. Just because it's traditionally a way to confit doesn't mean you have to. The rest of the duck you're then going to treat to make stock out of, just like before. So we're probably going to take it, we're going to put it in the oven, we're going to put some oil on it, some salt and pepper, we're going to roast it till it browns, and then we're going to take that core and we're going to make a duck stock. And it's fantastic, delicious stuff. It's, it's even a little sweet. It's hard to explain duck stock until you make it. Now, you're not going to get a lot of fat this way from your duck. All you're going to have is the skin on the back side of the duck, if you do this, and maybe your wings. And... So you can take that skin, cut it in small pieces, take a small pot of water, and put all the little pieces of skin in that water and turn that on and bring it very slowly to a simmer until it starts to render fat. It'll boil all the water off, and eventually you'll end up with whatever duck fat you're going to get. But if you're going to do what I just said, either way, you're not going to be getting the skin from the breast because you want to keep the skin on the breast. And you probably don't want to skin your leg quarters. So there's not a lot of fat there. There will also be some fat inside the duck in the cavity you can pull out and add to that. And that will give you a small amount of fat. It's not going to be enough to confit a duck. One duck does not a confit amount of fat make. So if you're going to confit, you're going to have to come up with something. You can use lard to confit or you can buy some duck fat. Or you can save duck fat until you save enough duck fat from one duck to do confit. And the beauty of that is... When you confit a duck, whatever fat's left, you can save it and use it again and use it over and over and over again. This is how traditional duck confits were done in, in, in French farmhouses. It wasn't one duck gave you enough to do a confit. It was using duck constantly. They would end up with enough fat to confit leg quarters is traditionally what was done. If you're going to take it apart, just go ahead and take the skin off the wings, use that skin along with the other skin you get to render fat, And then throw those bones in with the core into the oven, roast it till it's brown, and then make a stock. You go ahead and just use them for that. All right? Either way is fine. If you do the part out thing, then you're going to want to look up how to cook duck breast. And basically, you want to use a cast iron pan. You want to do a good sear and finish in the oven to whatever temperature you want to cook your duck to. And the other way to do it, which is fantastic, 
Take your duck breasts, season them however you want. I like salt, pepper, garlic, and thyme. That's like classic, right? And sear the skin. Cook the skin for a couple minutes in a hot pan. Reserve that fat and save it. Put it with your other fat. Then vacuum seal those two duck breasts. Pick the temperature you want to cook them to and sous vide them for like two hours, even more if you want to. Then take them out, and when you sear them, sear the skin a second time, you will get an unbelievably crisp skin. It can't be done any other way. Because you've already rendered some fat out the first time. Then you've sous vide it, rendered out more, and then when you've, it's, it's a lot like Peking duck. The secret to making that crispy Peking duck you can get in a restaurant is, they've rendered every bit of fat out of that skin. That's how they get it that way. So you've kind of done that as a cheat. Those are your two main ways to do it, though. And personally, I don't think you can go wrong either way. I would buy a second duck. I would do it both ways. And then I would decide what works best for me. But do not throw away the scraps. Make a duck stock. Make duck soup. People use the term duck soup to talk about something that's like a big, hairy mess. It's not fair to the duck or the soup. Duck soup, it's amazing. A little parsley, a little celery, a little bit of carrot, whatever else you think you want in there. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. Next, um... This comes from Tom. Tom says, how do you deal with hard water in your Anova? Details, we just noticed our sous vide cooking started to make noise and seizing up. We realize there's a ton of mineral growth on the inside. So we've been soaking it in vinegar and even CLR, which is calcium line rust. And while it's better, it's still not working well. I imagine the correct answer is that every time or two you use it, you should soak it in vinegar. Maybe add a little vinegar each time you use it. It doesn't seem to come apart for a deep cleaning, but perhaps I just don't see it. At the very least, once again, um, it, it's an exa- This is. Uh, I, I don't get the last statement. Anyway, um, okay, so the easy answer is well, first of all, you probably have hard water like I do. And the easy answer is as long as you don't have a wife like mine who has a complete aversion. To the smell of vinegar. Just take about two tablespoons of white vinegar and add it to your your tank when you do your CV. And right there, you're probably not going to ever have a problem. In my case, it might be more like four. But vinegar is cheap. I'm talking about the cheap-ass white vinegar. Basically, what you're going to do is, as you're using it, you're cleaning it. And then you might want to do like a 50-50 mix, rinse through once every 60 days if you're doing that. Or you can use CLR for that. But that's that's all you got to do if you have hard water. If you don't have hard water, you probably will not have this problem. But it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. You've got a circulator heating water to a high temperature that's going to create mineral deposits. So you need something that takes those mineral deposits away. One thing you can try is actually running vinegar through it, just do this outside. Like, I'm talking straight vinegar. Because remember, you don't have to have a big, giant vessel to run vinegar through it. It doesn't have to run very hot either. You can run it like 100 degrees. And remember, when it comes to putting vinegar in your water, if you don't like the taste of vinegar, it doesn't matter. It's never going to touch your food. The water you're using with sous vide, I don't advise it, but in theory, it could be incredibly polluted water, with PCBs in it, and it shouldn't affect your food at all because you can't get through the bag that you put your food in. Your food is not being boiled with sous vide. For those that are unfamiliar with the concept, it is being heated with water that never touches the food. Now, what do you do 
If, like me, you have a wife that's like, what's that smell? What's that smell? What's that smell? Oh, my God, it smells so bad. Because you put a couple tablespoons of vinegar in the freaking CVs. Take your CV circulator, set it outside. Just just set it up outside. That's what I do. And I don't do it all the time, but I would say about one in five missions, it gets about four tablespoons of vinegar. And I haven't had any problems. And I've had my Anova now for about three years. Um, the... Uh, The, the first one I had was a jewel, and a lot of people have jewels and they love them, and I loved mining, but it lasted about six, in, six months and it just died. And I don't believe that it was a, uh, a hard water buildup, though I hadn't discovered this issue yet myself. Um, it just died. It was like an internal part working failure. And there's like, that's the thing about these things. Like you said, you can't take them apart. There's no real way to repair them or fix them or service them uh, once they fail. It just worked one day and didn't the next. Uh, so that's when I switched over to a Nova. But there you go. Just run, run some uh, some vinegar through there. Uh, you can do, like I said, every mission, couple tablespoons. In theory, I know people would, again would be scary, but you could run CLR through it every mission. You know, you could put a teaspoon of CLR in it, in it every time you ran it, because again, the water never touches the food. And people say, well, what would happen if? I'm cooking something in sous vide, and the bag fails, and it's full of water. Well, I'm not eating it anyway. Double bag your food, whatever, man. I like to me that's a, that is a, that is a failure. It's never happened, but if it did, I would probably be discarding that food unless it was something. Oh, I don't know what it would take to change my mind on that. Next up is just a quick comment I wanted to read because I agree with it so much. Uh, when I was talking about freedom and liberty a few weeks ago and seeking some feedback on it, this one came in and I just didn't get to use it then, and I've saved it for, for this show. Uh, this is, again, from Tim in uh, Nebraska. He said, as you stated, the first step to your freedom is making your own decisions. I would add the next step is your mindset. Once people realize you as the individual is where freedom lives, you stop putting faith in government, politicians, and others and start acting free and freedom will follow. Yeah, I, I think that this is kind of like personified most perfectly in the movie Shawshank Redemption um, where the, the main character basically tells his fellow prisoners, and this is... Andy Dufresne is the character's name in the show. I think Tim Robbins is the actor, whoever. Um, but he's been put in prison, if you haven't seen it. This is an old, old movie. But if you haven't seen it, he goes to prison for a crime he didn't commit. And eventually he breaks out. I don't need to give you spoiler warnings to a movie that's 25 years old at this point. Um, but right before he breaks out, he basically tells his fellow inmates he's never been really in prison a day in his life. He's always been free because he's been free in his mind. And there's a limit to how free you can be in your mind when you're in a cage, but it also tags back to the beginning of the show when I said if you're not thinking about tomorrow, that's when, when really all is lost. But there is a limit. If you are in prison, you are in prison, and you can only remain so free in your mind. Here's the scary part, though. No matter how free you are physically, there's no limit. To how imprisoned you can become by your mind. And that's what Tim, whether he realizes it or not, is talking about here. Most of the limitations placed on human beings are done mentally. It's done through mental conditioning and mental training and a belief that you can't. Now, I'm not one of these people, if you can dream it, you can achieve it. No, you can't. I can dream a lot of shit that I can't achieve. I can dream developing the freaking holographic technology on Star Trek. Trust me, I have. 
I can dream achieving warp drive capability. No. I'm not even sure that can happen. I'm not even sure that's possible. I'd like to believe that it is. I hope somebody's working on that. But just because you can dream something doesn't mean that you can achieve it. But you can achieve most of what you can conceive of in dream within the world of reality. And when I say the world of reality, I'm not talking about going beyond what we think is possible. But there's only, only so many steps beyond possible that the next step is going to be. We, 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 we didn't go from, hey, let's pile some logs up under this thing and push it to freaking the space shuttle in a week. There was a series of progression there that humanity has to progress through to advance technology. But most of what we conceive of can be accomplished, and most of what we want to do can be done, which is way more important. When it comes to the things that you actually claim would make you happy, if you can dream it, you can achieve it. That's, that's the reality of that quote. But it starts with a realization that your freedom lives within you, not within any other place. It starts with a willingness to say, yeah, there are some limitations on what I can do. And some of them are unfair limitations. Because they're not limitations like, gee, I'm not allowed to steal my neighbor's shit. Oh, okay, that's probably a reasonable limitation. I think it is. I, I'm, I'm for that limitation. Right? And if I took away the law, you probably wouldn't go do it anyway. But I wonder how many other things, if I took away the law that you claim is the impediment, you still wouldn't do. And most people wouldn't do any of them. In fact, most of the things people don't do, there is no law preventing them from doing that they claim they want to do. Or there would be a very simple remedy to the thing that actually is an impediment. In other words, I want to keep chickens. I can't because of where I live. Move. If that's what you really want, if that's really, really, if that's really what's holding back your whole life's happiness is not having a chicken, move. Now, I don't think that's the case for most people, but it's an example. I really want to be a farmer. Buy a farm. I don't have any money. Borrow it. I could go broke. You're broke now. And what it comes down to is that's not really what you want to do. You like the idea of it. You want to talk about tomorrow in a way that allows you to dream holographic technology. See, you're actually building the holographic technology of Star Trek. There were a few episodes about how people could lose themselves in a holodeck. That wasn't about a holodeck. That was about the mind. That was about creating a fantasy world for you to live in so that you don't have to live in the actual world that you really do live in. You don't have to actually try to actualize what you want in the real world if you can give yourself a place to dream. Even the uh, the Borg Matrix where they woke up as free individuals would have been an example of that if you're that Star Trek nerdy, right? Was it Unimatrix Zero, something like that? Where they all when they when they regenerated, it was like it was like a holograph, but it was a dream. And they all were there together, and they all communicated together, and they were all individuals, even though they were actually held collectively still inside the Borg Collective, where one mind, one thought, one bit of control. Well, I would say the lesson there, guys, was that even though they were all under the control and assimilated, then that part of them was there, and it was up to them to fight their revolution in the real world, not in the fantasy world. That's exactly what Tom's talking about here. Tim's talking about here. It's exactly... Your limitations that you've given yourself are phantoms, but they're also real. There's a reason you cannot walk through walls in your dreams. They're your walls. You put them there. 
With that, let's move on and talk about one more before we wrap up today. Been hearing a lot about this one from a lot of people. Jake Robinson sent me some stuff on it. Some other people sent me some stuff on it. Uh, it's called FedCoin. I talked about it about a month ago. It is real. It is in the plans. It will eventually happen. It is, you can think of it as a national cryptocurrency, except that it isn't. Because the cryptocurrency, as we use the term, is a decentralized system. Even if it wasn't private, right, in that if a government, could a, here's another way to, well, here's what I'm saying. Could a government create a true cryptocurrency? Yes. Will a government create a true cryptocurrency? I doubt it. Governments do not relinquish control. And the point of a cryptocurrency is even the person that issued it basically issues it with a set of rules that then it must follow. It doesn't mean nothing can change because programmers and forks and all types of things can cause change. But there's a given set of parameters that can't be violated or it no longer remains true to what it is. If government does this, it will look like cryptocurrency. It will sort of kind of act like cryptocurrency, but it will be centralized versus decentralized, meaning they can control it. They can inflate it at will. And I know people are going to say, like, there are cryptocurrencies you can do that with. Yeah, but uh, they're not centralized in the standpoint that they come from a government. I mean, technically, you know, Amazon Coin is really kind of a cryptocurrency, even though it doesn't work on a blockchain. They can basically issue currency to buy Amazon shit with. And if they wanted to, there would be nothing to stop Amazon from saying, hey, we're going to create, you know, a uh, million dollars in Amazon credits this year and give them to the nation of Djibouti. Randomly assigning those services. Like, you could do that. But no one has to use it. When you get into a federal currency in the largest economy in the world, in the U.S. dollar, that most of the world's using, even outside of our country, in one way or another. And you digitize it. So it's really not a cryptocurrency. It's a digitized currency using cryptocurrency features. And you call it FedCoin. And, and the way it's going to be implemented is a form of UBI. Now, that may not be a regular UBI initially. We just had a UBI. You know when you got that check from the government? That was a universal basic income. Pretty much everybody got the same money. There were some stipulations, like if you made less money, you got more. But in the end, everybody got a payment. If you qualified, you got money. Just, here it is. Spend it. They tried to get this implemented in the first stimulus bill. That's what the Fed wanted. They did not want a check to go out from the government or a direct deposit in the normal way that you think of it to your bank from the United States Treasury They wanted direct digital payments. And they said, hey, we can do it faster. We can guarantee that it works. And there won't be any fraud. Because we'll just attach it to people's social security numbers. That'll be like their crypto wallet address. That's their public address. That's a public-private address because we don't tell anybody what it is. But we know, so it's public to us. But once this is done... When it comes to creating new money, not only can it be created, but it can be distributed anywhere. It can also be taken away. So let's say the government decides we need more taxes. So they decide to issue a tax against wealth. 
Zip! All the money is gone. Or they assign a negative interest rate to the dollar. I said assign. I didn't say the market assigned it. It's, they just decided it's negative interest rates. They actually begin to directly bleed what you think of as inflation directly from your balance now. Or you're a bad little boy. You're a bad little boy and you say things that are not acceptable about the Fuhrer, whoever he might be or she might be at the time. So they just take away your money. Or they take away your UBI. Or they say you're not allowed to buy certain things. This can also screw up the general cryptocurrency market. What if they just say Fed coin is not transferable to any purpose for cryptocurrency? And there is no more regular money. There's no more cash. Because, God, that cash spreads that, that nasty, deadly coronavirus from years ago. It's still out there that nobody's seen anymore. That's what it's going to be in a few years. No one's going to know what a COVID is in a few years. Nobody's going to have seen it anymore in, in the recent and present. <laughs> But we'll still be afraid of it. We'll st we might even still be wearing masks in some parts of the country where people are stupid enough to be controlled. Or you didn't wear your mask. You know, we caught you on a camera in a store without your mask on. We just turned off your money. Or God knows what else. This is like the most deadly blow to liberty there ever could be. And I think at some point it's going to happen. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen in concert with this drastic recession depression when people are so scared they'll let it happen because I get free money. I have two videos for you to watch on this to learn more about it because this is all I'm going to cover about it today. One is by Ron Paul. It's a couple months old. It's very focused on the direct economic stupidity of this idea. And the other one's very more recent. It's less than a month old. It's by Mark Moss, and it's called The Fed Coin Trap. I have links to both of those I recommend. And, and the second one by Mark Moss goes more into some of the things and beyond the things that I covered that government could do with this power. And, and I'll tell you what, there's a lot of fringe crazies out there talking about this right now, but they're not that crazy and they're not that fringe when it comes to this subject. And anything they can dream up that government could do with this technology, it's not that they would, but they could. And generally speaking, when government can do something and it's in their best interest to do something, sooner or later they do that thing. So this is something to look more and more at. This is why, number one, you should have some cryptocurrency and you should learn how to use it and you should diversify into it. But number two, you should not put all your money in cryptocurrency. That is stupid. Because there is the potential that they can destroy the value of cryptocurrency or at least cause major pullbacks in pricing with policies with what you can and can't do with a digital dollar once a digital dollar is the digital dollar. And it would make things like the USDT cryptocurrency potentially illegal overnight. Because how can you back a cryptocurrency with the US dollar if you're not allowed to exchange cryptocurrency for dollars? You'd have to use dollars to get dollars, and where would the dollars come from? That you, see how this all works? Now, the, 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 the potential for freedom here that cryptocurrency offers. If people can stop thinking about Bitcoin in how many dollars can be exchanged for it, and start thinking of Bitcoin as how much of the things that circulate in the economy can I buy with a Bitcoin or a tenth of a Bitcoin or uh, a .01 Bitcoin or a Satoshi? What does it buy me? Because a currency actually derives its value from the economy it circulates in. And right now what creates liquidity in cryptocurrency is its greatest advantage and its greatest disadvantage. The fact that I can be target 
and say, sure, we'll take Bitcoin. And the second you, you give me your Bitcoin, I'm turning it into dollars and depositing it at you know, Target's corporate account for Chicago. That makes it more accepted, but it makes a weakness. It causes a weakness. Because everybody's still pricing cryptocurrency in dollars. And it doesn't matter if it's Bitcoin or Dash or Monero. It's still, well, how many dollars is it worth? When people do a trade, and I do it too, because I don't know what else to do. But when I do a transaction and you're going to buy MSB for 50 bucks, I, and you say, how much Bitcoin do I need to send you, Jack? I'm like, you can figure it out for yourself. Or I go to Bitcoin, $50 USD to Bitcoin. Point zero one, whatever, you know, whatever it ends up being. Send me that. Here's an address. What could happen here is in an attempt to kill cryptocurrency, that problem could end up solved. You might even still see a float against the dollar, a relative currency value. But when somebody in Europe spends euros, they don't think about how many U.S. dollars they can get to the euro. When you spend a dollar in Chicago, you don't think about how many euros that would be in France. And those are geographic currency limitations, There's an entire cryptocurrency economy where people exchange goods and services for crypto and no U.S. dollars are involved. It's, it is a complicated place. But it's a place that we need to get to more fully if cryptocurrency is going to do what it truly promises to do. Which is, hey, there's only ever going to be 21 million bitcoins. For all of its problems, bitcoin is a better currency than the United States dollar is. It has a fundamental problem solved. It can't overinflate. That alone makes it a superior currency. It really does. But as long as as long as the reason that I'm going to take Bitcoin is I can get dollars. And Bitcoin doesn't have to be Bitcoin here. Again, it could be Dash, it could be Monero, it could be freaking gobbledygook coin. It doesn't matter. It's everybody's concern is what are they worth in dollars? There's going to be, I believe, two parallel economies. One based on private currency and one based on public, public currencies. And I think it's a good idea to have a command and control mindset for both of them going forward because you don't know who's going to win. I'm not going to be a maximalist here and pretend to know. right? A Bitcoin maximalist, or I guess a new term, I would say a crypto maximalist. That crypto is the way forward, period. I don't know that. I know that under the current situation, if the government could have gotten rid of it by now, it would have. And it didn't. So it can't. But I think if you digitize the global currency and realize what this Fed coin would do, I can pull up Billy Bob's freaking public address and I can see every single dollar Billy Bob was ever paid or spent ever using that currency. And if I then start tracking it through public blockchains, like, let's say, Bitcoin. Let's say that when it's first opened that Billy Bob did make a transaction with Tommy Bob for Bitcoin for FedCoin. And Tommy Bob gave Billy Bob some FedCoin for some Bitcoin. Well, now I have the Bitcoin address. I don't necessarily know Tommy Bob's the, the receiver, but once I figure that out, I can track that currency through the public blockchain anywhere it went. The only way it kind of disappears is when we go into a true privacy coin like a Monero. What if I make it a great big giant hairy felony to ever convert Fed coin into a privacy coin? 
or to knowingly transfer it to an intermediary like a Bitcoin Cash. That's just what it can do to screw up cryptocurrency. But it can also be like, well, Tommy Bob buys an awful lot of Jack Daniels. We need to raise his health insurance. You see, imagine every single transaction you ever make being traceable and trackable back to you in real time. Yes, the government right now can get a warrant and go into your bank records and see all the things your bank says. But you have you have it out. Cash. What if cash goes away? It'll take 10 years to totally get rid of it, but 10 years isn't that long. When you're 18, 10 years seems like forever. When you're 50, you realize 10 years is such a brief period of even a generation's history. Some stuff to think about there. Uh, definitely watch the two videos, Ron Paul and Mark Moss, on this. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Now, we're talking about money. One thing you guys know I love is a value in a deal. About a year and a half ago, I bought a DeWalt 20-volt Max XR cordless drill combo kit, and I got a great deal on it, smoking deal. I didn't even realize how good a deal it was until I bought it, and it showed up, and I thought about it. And I'm like, man, I need to run that as an item of the day. And even though it shipped next day, it was already gone. And the price went back up to 269 bucks. I got mine for 189 bucks. I've been waiting a year and a half to put this product on T-SPAS because I wanted to wait until the deal came back. The deal came back in December last year, abutted a weekend where I'd already put out the item of the day for the Friday, and by the Monday it was gone again. It's back, first time since December last year that it's back. Not 189 but 199 This is a brushless compact drill, a brushless quarter-inch impact driver, a charger, and two amp-hour, two two-amp-hour batteries. Now, I'll admit, two-amp-hour batteries are about as lightweight as it gets from DeWalt, and I love the five- and six-amp-hour batteries. They last a great long time. But the two-amp-hour batteries are great batteries. They're just, you know, they have a, a time-temporal limitation. But let me give you the idea, an idea of what this is worth. The drill is the DCD791 series. They sell as a bare tool. That means I already have shit. I don't need to buy more batteries or anything right now. I just want the drill, please. $120 to $140. The DCF887 series of the brushless impact drivers, a fantastic little impact driver, also sell for about $140. So you're at right there $260 to $280 for two bare tools. The whole kit is $199 right now. Additionally, there's a charger, call that $35, bucks, two 2 amp-hour batteries, $80 to $90, depending on what they're selling for. This is assuming you buy everything new and not refurbished. So you're looking at an overall price point on this, if you bought all these items separately, $375 to $400. The kit I'm talking about generally sells in the $280 range. So it's even a decent deal at that. right? When you hit the price sub $200, If you're like, I need to get a new impact driver or a new really good DeWalt drill, just look at it this way. You would pay $140 for it. So for six, let's say you wanted the drill. For $60, you're getting the $140 impact driver, two batteries, and a charger for, for $60. You see why I'm excited about this. In fact, I, I, I get pricing alerts, 
And I, 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 sometimes I'm like, man, I'm definitely run that today. I never get a pricing alert. I haven't yet. Where as soon as I saw it, I'm like, F yeah. And I say it out loud. I did this morning. I'm like, F yeah. Finally, I get to bring this back to people. So I know it's not for everybody. It's still a significant purchase, 200 bucks. But if you've been looking to get into top-end DeWalt tools, this is the best opportunity. And I'll, and I'll tell you, this is the place to start if you're getting into power tools or you're now you're migrating to a better quality tool if you're still on some old battery tools or old system tools or whatever. Um, the two most commonly used items you will ever have with a set of cordless power tools is going to be a drill and an impact driver. It just It is. And I would say, in order, the most frequently used cordless tools on my property, number one, drill, number two, impact driver, number three, skill saw, circular saw, call it what you want, number four, sawzall. Those four. Those are the four that you want to have. And then you can look at other things, too. But you can do almost anything with those four tools. And I'll just say, the deal is stupid good. Back when I got it 18 months ago, the drill was 180 bucks as a bare tool. They've come down because they have some newer models. There's nothing wrong with it. Let me tell you, these things are hoss. They are compact in size, big on power. The drill never stutters. It's amazing what that drill can do. The little impact driver, we drove over a 106-inch freaking structural wood screws into 4x4s with it on a project. And it never blinked. It never blinked. Awesome deal. Always you can help support us by doing your online shopping at T-Spaz. Yes, I make some money as an affiliate. But I'm telling you today, if I didn't do affiliates, I would be bringing you this deal anyway because it's that good. I don't need it. I can't justify it. I almost bought one today. Because I'm like, I could buy this and probably sell it for 220 bucks. A week from now, when you can't get it anywhere for $200 anymore, I can probably sell it for $220 brand new in the box. And as far as the extra batteries and charger, no one that owns cordless tools ever said, gee, I wish I had less batteries and chargers. That's not a thing. So get this one while you can. I'm expecting it won't be here tomorrow. little thing about DeWalt. If you go look at this today, you'll see that DeWalt doesn't even say it's a sale. It doesn't show you the, 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 the retail price. It just shows you the price. DeWalt is one of the stingiest companies there is when it comes to sales. They don't promote sales. They occasionally lower prices. Retailers sometimes say that DeWalt stuff's on sale. But I'm going to tell you something about DeWalt. DeWalt is a lot like Mountain House. Stored food, right? The Mountain House foods. If you're a retailer for Mountain House, you can't just willy-nilly put it on sale. They will cut you as a distributor. They tell you when you can and how much you can cut the price by. No matter what they sold to you for, they have that kind of channel control. The Walt is worse. The Walt protects the value of the brand by limiting this. You don't get opportunities that often at it. I bleed black and yellow. I know some of you guys like rigid and other tools. That's fine. I'm not here to put anybody else's tools down. I'm not that much of a snob. But once you standardize on something, it makes sense to stick with it. And DeWalt continues to come out with things like the, the pole saws and stuff that being on this 20-volt this system makes so much sense. Um, when they first came out, I was not impressed. But the, the latest generation of tools is unbelievable quality. I once again bleed black and yellow, and I invite you to take an opportunity at this deal. With that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day. I thought, let's just do something fun. For the song of the day. And it's not really about the song itself. It's about the theme this week. I just realized, since it's an even year, 2020, 1980, 40 years ago.
40 years ago. And I like country music. And country music's changed a lot in the last 20 years, let alone the last 40 years. But 1980 for me was the year that country music made a change. I believe for the better, it just didn't stay that way. But all the way up through like the heyday of the Garth Brooks era, the 1980 decade swap was when bands like Alabama threw just enough of that classic rock feel into country music to take it to another level, where it wasn't all about getting your dog back, your truck back, your wife back, etc. However, your old-timers, your classic country was still around. That sound that we had become accustomed to through the 60s and the 70s and even the 50s was still there. Those artists that were big in the 19, like 1968 were still making number one hits in 1980. It was the overlap period, and through this week, I'm going to give you the top five, starting with number five, counting down to number one, and you'll hear all of that mixed together. Today's song is one that almost everybody in the country knows, and we recently, recently, unfortunately, lost Kenny Rogers, passed away. This is one of his most famous songs of all time. They even made a movie about it. I think I've played it before, Coward of the County. But it weirdly fits in with today's quote of the day and the concept of you're not guaranteed a tomorrow. In the story of this song, Tommy's daddy died in prison. He died in prison because he got in a fight with somebody. He ended up dying in the fight. And even though it was a fair fight and a fight that was justified, the law didn't see it that way. So they threw Tommy's daddy in prison. Before he died in prison, he told his son, don't make the mistakes I have. Because you might imagine... Tom's father, no matter how justified he was, and there are people like this in prison right now, even if I think I was justified still to this day, it wasn't worth it. I have that person's blood on my hands, and my life is destroyed. If I could go back and not do it, I would. And I'm not going to say a name, but there's somebody right now being lionized in the world that took two lives. And many feel we're justified in doing so. But I guarantee you that young man right now would probably be telling his son if he had one, don't do this. There is a place for the wisdom of age and the forethought to once I do this thing, I can't go back. But in this story, eventually, this young man who's done everything he could to live up to what his father asked him to live up to is faced with something that I, don't hope, I hope no one I know is ever faced with, having a woman you love raped by a gang of men. And it breaks him to the point where he breaks his promise, but he still feels justified in it. And what that's really telling you here is that no matter how much wisdom can come from someone else, in the end, in your life, You must make your own decisions. You are the final decider. You are the one in charge. And sometimes even good advice, there is a point where you have to take a different course. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Everyone considered him a coward of the county. He had never stood one single time to prove the county wrong His mama named him Tommy But folks just called him Yellow Something always told me 
they were reading Tommy wrong. He was only ten years old when his daddy died in prison. I looked after Tommy cause he was my brother's son. I still recall the final words my brother said to Tommy. Son, my life is over, but yours has just begun. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. It won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man. There's someone for everyone. Tommy's love was Becky In her arms he didn't have to prove he was a man One day while he was working The Gatlin boys came calling They took turns at Becky And there was three of them Tommy opened up the door and Saw his Becky crying The shattered look was more than he could stand He reached above the fireplace And took down his daddy's picture As his tears fell on his daddy's face He heard these words again Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done Walk away from trouble if you can Won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. Son, you don't have to fight to be a man. The Gatlin boys just laughed at him when he walked into the bar room. One of them got up and met him halfway across the floor. Tommy turned around, they said, hey, look, old yellow's leaving. But you could have heard a pin drop when Tommy stopped and locked the door. Twenty years of crawling was bottled up inside him. He wasn't holding nothing back, he let him have it all. When Tommy left the bar room, Not a Gatlin boy was standing He said this one's for Becky As he watched the last one fall And I heard him say I promised your dad Not to do the things you've done I'll walk away from trouble when I can Now please don't think I'm weak I didn't turn the other cheek And Papa, I sure hope you understand Sometimes you gotta fight when you're a man Everyone considered him the coward of the county